Welcome back to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. Please enjoy today's episode. So, so Natalie, um, when something goes wrong during surgery, who do you blame? Do you blame the anesthesiologist, the perfusionist, the nurse, the resident? <laughs> oh, um, I'm very familiar with this situation. Not that I've done a lot of things wrong in the operating room. <laughs> um, I think as the surgeon, um, I just love the idea that, you know, you can't control everything in the room, but you can certainly fix anything or you think you can fix anything. Um, and I, I, I'm a firm believer in that and, and in teaching and expecting that your trainee is likely to make mistakes and it's your job to help them get out of it. I don't think I'm one that's likely to blame other people. <laughs> that's, that's good advice. My, my trainer, my, my trainer in general surgery always said, you know, uh, people always complain about the, the anatomy is so difficult. He says, I wish I had difficult anatomy, but me, it's always the same. You know, it, here's the artery, there's the vein. It's never, it's never different. I wish I had this. So in, in, in other words, you know, don't blame other things that if you do something wrong, uh, blame yourself first. Uh, I think that was something I always remembered that also, you know, when I taught my residents say, if, if something goes wrong, look at yourself first and uh, don't blame anybody else. Tessa, so have you, and if you talk about training and education, what do you think the role of an industry like, you know, Medtronic could be in, in, in training? Is there a role for industry or, or to play yeah. here? I mean, I, I definitely think so. I mean, it, it's such an important part of the field is to, to have a, a partnership and, you know, and a communication and a collaboration, I think, with industry. And so it's really important that we learn that, I think, in training. I think we've had at, at Michigan, we've had several different, you know, wet labs sponsored by industry. And I think those are good opportunities. You know, in the OR, we're getting to know the reps for different um, devices and valves and things. And I think that's very valuable so I think there's definitely an opportunity and then not, not only that, but then also in some uh, like training courses that are, are sometimes offered by industry. I know I've gone to a couple of those and found them very valuable. And so, you know, it's, it's about the relationship building. It's about the collaboration. It can, you know, it's sometimes it's about research and it's about innovation too. So I think, I think it's a very important thing to start early and to expose trainees to. Yeah. And then Daniel, uh, I think you're all millennials, isn't it? So um, do millennials learn differently than, let's say, the older generation? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has a different learning style. Personally, for myself, I was never a reader. Um, I remember finishing high school and my parents would walk into my bedroom and there'd be a stack of textbooks and they'd open the first page and you could hear the creak. Uh, you know, <laughs> never having been open before. I was just, a, you know, I was a, I was a hands-on learner. I was a doer. Um, I didn't really get much from watching things. So I mean, everyone has a unique learning style and uh, the opportunities to go out to a course, for example, that's sponsored by industry, whether it's for mitral valve or um, arrhythmia surgery or robotics. I mean, all of those give you an opportunity to get your hands um, on some sort of instrument that you're going to apply to the patient in a safe learning environment. And um, those opportunities just, I think, personally for me, uh, make you more facile. And then you get to bring that tool or technology into the operating room and apply it to a patient. Yeah, so, so you mentioned that you actually, you know, textbooks is not something you would learn from, but did, did you go to YouTube to to watch videos or? No, I mean, unfortunately, I never did my homework. I think that was my crux. <laughs> but I managed to put it all together. I mean, you know, 
everyone just has a unique way of of uh, getting there. Everyone starts at the beginning and everyone ends at the same place. You know, we'll all finish training at some point in time. Each of our training paths are unique. Pass them into everyone's individual perseverance and, and dedication to the specialty. Yeah, great. So, Natalie, you know, um, are, are you a person that if somebody, a KOL, you know, key opinion leader, um, when they tell you how to do operation, do you take that for granted? Is that something you will follow or will you try to get, you know, information from different sources? So at an, at an annual meeting, do you go to those sessions where there's just somebody there on the podium that tells you how to do it? I think that you can collect different tidbits from everyone. So they might tell you how they do, you know, this operation from A to Z, and you might just take two parts from that. But I think that uh, blindly following someone else's technique, there's always ways you could improve on their technique. And uh, I think you could always add something to it or just consider how they're doing it and see if it might be tweaked a little bit. Yeah. And and James, how, how do you check? Whether you know you you like to like a certain approach, do you go to YouTube videos uh, to get information? Do you go to literature and reading articles in the journals? Or um, I read a lot of the comparative things in the articles as far as journals and things like that go. Um, as much as possible, if there's like a simulation to practice something, I do it. I you know I'm very happy to try pretty much anything once. As far as you know, if somebody you know routinely cannulates in a way I'm not used to. I would, going to say, oh, sure, you know, I'll try, you know, Seldinger cannulation, even though it's something that I feel like is kind of an unnecessary additional few steps. But, you know, I'm willing to just about explore any possibilities still. I try to keep a really open mind. Um, and I've tried to make sure that I don't get too set in my ways yet. Yeah. Is, is augmented reality or virtual reality or simulators, those words, Tessa, is, is that, do you think that that will play an important role in the training of surgeons? I think I think I'd say yes. I, I yes and no. I mean, I think that you know, at, at Michigan, the philosophy has always been that we you know mostly learn in the OR. Though it's also very important to practice outside the OR if you can. Like a few people here, you know, I, I it's sometimes that's hard to do, hard to find time to do, and then the simulations never really approximate reality. But there are some really good simulations out there, and I think especially wet labs when you can really get your hands on you know, pig hearts and real valves, like those are really valuable, valuable experiences because it's a low stress environment. And, you know, you've usually got attendings there walking around and really giving you specific advice. That being said, I think there's a whole world of opportunity for development in, in education and surgical training with, I don't, I don't know if augmented reality is the right word, but at least in, um, well, potentially in the use of like video and, and recording and video analysis. And that's something that I'm interested in is looking at that. And, you know, if we, if we videotape ourselves operating, I mean, that's been done for years in sports and that's been, you know, a valuable coaching technique that has been employed very successfully at high level competitive sports. And I think that there's value to that and a huge untapped area of opportunity for surgical coaching and evaluation. And I, I do think that that could be a part of, you know, not only training, but also evaluation. Because right now, you know, we do our oral boards and we do our written boards, but no one really evaluates your technical skills other than your own train, your own mentors. And so could it be that in the future we need to be videotaped and that there could be some both, you know, visual and also even artificial intelligence and analysis of that efficiency of motion and all sorts of things. All of that, all of that is in the works and being studied right now. So 
yeah yeah good point and maybe you know to um to end this also hopefully also a little bit more positive way that this 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 outlook in for cardiac surgery i i can tell you in 2005 we had a meeting uh, because it was the first transcatheter heart valve was implanted and, you know, drug-eluting stents came on the market. And so there were people predicting, well, this is the end of cardiac surgery. Um, and I remember I was invited to that meeting uh, with a couple of sur surgeons, well, a lot of surgeons from Europe, some from the United States, to think about the future. Um, and we all had to read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Um, I don't know whether you're familiar with that. That's also a kind of a story telling, you know, that if you don't react fast enough that you will you, you will lose your, your business, uh, more or less. Um, nothing has come out. I mean, we're still here. We're in 2023 and cardiac surgery is thriving, I think. it's it's um, So now that transcatheter heart valves, you know, we have aortic, we have mitral, tricuspid. How do you see the future, Daniel? You choose this specialty. I'm actually going to participate in structural heart here at the University of Rochester, um, you know, starting in July. That's kind of one of my areas of focus. And, uh, you know, we, the reality is cardiac surgeons miss the boat with coronary stents. Um, if you look at like vascular as a specialty, you know, probably 50% of their volume now or more is, you know, strictly endovascular. And they're continuing to advance and evolve with all these fenestrated grafts you know, custom-made physician-modified graphs, and their technology just continues to advance. I mean, there's so many balloons, coils, stents, whatever that they have on the shelf. And, you know, if you ask the average um, trainee what their skill set is, you know, maybe it's uh, strictly TAVR, but outside of that, you know, not a ton of people are doing mitroclip, not a ton of people are doing triclip or transcatheter mitral replacement. Um, and so there's, there is a huge explosion of growth in the structural heart space. And just because the field now is doing well from a cardiac surgery standpoint, doesn't mean that it'll continue to do well if we don't continue to evolve with the, the technology. And so I think it's really important, you know, that we remain integrated, that we are on the front lines of using these new devices that were part of the studies um, so that there is still equipoise between the transcatheter, you know, minimally invasive side of the equation in terms of treating patients and um, the open surgical side. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah. Natalie, how do you see the future as a specialty? Um, one thing that kind of touches on our minimally invasive and uses of technology is I think that the robot is going to continue to be more heavily incorporated. For thoracic surgery, I think it's great. The visualization is awesome. And the same for uh, robotic mitral valves and the few small studies that have been done for aortic valves. I think that's the next place that we're going and it fits right in with training because I had an attending sit me down and we watched a video of me placing the sutures and it is shocking to watch your movements and see how you're doing it and really have someone critique it in real time. So yeah. I, think, I think that's definitely a great uh, opportunity for trainees in the future and also for the surgeon because the, the robot is more comfortable. You get to sit down. Absolutely. Yes. It's better for your back. Absolutely. Yeah. So James, any, any viewpoint for the future? Um, I think that we need to take the lessons that we can see from similar specialties and not repeat the same mistakes that we've previously made. So throughout the 1980s and 90s, and uh, obviously through today, cardiac surgery you know, gave up the opportunity to be actively involved with stenting and things like that. And so we just essentially 
gave up what could be a huge portion of our field, uh, which if you look at the vascular surgeons, they did the exact opposite. They embraced it. And I think we need to take that approach with structural heart disease. I think we need to be willing to, you know, be actively involved in TVARs and EVARs and things like that. Don't give that up to interventional radiology. Don't give it all up to vascular surgery. Make sure that we stay engaged at every step of that process because it may be that in 15 years, if somebody comes in with a dissection, they're getting an ascending EVAR with a TAVR valve and things like that. And if you've only been doing, you know, open ascending aortic replacements and you give everything else up because you want to do the big open case and you don't want to do the cath lab cases or the radiographic cases, I think that, you know, you may find yourself with a much smaller job market and much less marketability uh, by the time you're at what should be the peak of your career. So what, what do you think will the role be of robotic surgery in cardiac? Um, I definitely think that there's going to be a role for it. Um, I think that it can be challenging to be uh, as reproducible because I don't know that everyone's going to have the capabilities to do uh, extensive robotic cardiac surgery. I think that, you know, the minimally invasive mitral valves as in a right thoracotomy are going to be a lot more feasible because a lot of people are not trained as actively to be working with, you know, the indirect vision that you're using, you know, being camera assisted vision. I think that surgeons who actively do a lot of robotic thoracic are going to have an easier time transitioning to that simply because, you know, it's just as challenging to get around uh, pulmonary artery robotically as it is to take down an IMA robotically. They're equally fragile structures that require a similar skill set. Um, and so I think that in order to incorporate robotic cardiac surgery, you know, you shouldn't jump straight to the robotic mitral valve. You should transition into it, you know, if you've got little robotic experience, but you're doing some thoracic, do wedge possible lobes robotically. And, you know, you do the wedge and if that's all you do, you celebrate that you did the wedge, you took down the inferior pulmonary ligament, and then you do the rest of it, vats are open, however you're comfortable. And you just slowly progress. You know, the next step is you get to the point where you take the vein that way, and you know, you do things safely, you slowly incorporate more and more into your practice, uh, until you're very competent and comfortable with the robot in a less high pressure, timely situation than you would be with somebody who's got an arrested heart. And don't yep. be hesitant to convert to open if you have to. Great. Tessa, um, do you foresee that Somewhere in the future, you will be either a coronary surgeon or the valve surgeon that also do transcatheter valves, or what do you think? And yeah, what how the specialty will evolve? I mean, I do think that we're heading more and more toward you know further specialization and subspecialization. I think that is apparent, but I, I mean, there are definitely still a lot of community practices and a lot of places where the you know general adult surgeon, adult cardiac surgeon is valued and that skill set is is necessary as a trainee you know one of my top priorities just starting out or i guess as a you know completing my training i want to maintain a broad skill set early cuz i think that's going to be really important but i do have interests in certain niche um, areas and i think that ultimately i could see myself you know specializing um you know according to what the job is demanding but i do think the specialty is evolving and those surgeons who are the high volume surgeons for a particular area tend to be the end of the line for that disease process. Yeah. So, so what do you think of the specialty in general? Will it become smaller or stay the same or become bigger? I mean, I think in some ways become bigger. I mean, I, I don't see the, the volume really slowing down, but I also think one of the most important things is collaboration and multidisciplinary, you know, relationships. And like everybody's been saying so far, you know, learning from past mistakes and staying um, integrated into the, you know, structural heart world 
um, vascular, IR, cardiology, maintaining relationships with these other specialties. And if you see it as like a heart team, which is kind of like the goal, a true, you know, heart team approach, then, then in that way, you see the team is really growing exponentially. So if we can all kind of, you know, get um, respect each other's relative skill sets and utilize those for advancement, but also sort of see ourselves as part of the same team with the same goal to care for the patient and offer the best service, then I think in that way you can see our field really growing. And if we can do more and more multidisciplinary events and conferences and stuff, then I think we can actually have our biggest impact, um, you know, on, on medicine and patient care that way. I was just going to add, you know, one quick thing. I mean, we have the opportunity to treat the number one all-cause mortality in the United States, which is, you know, cardiovascular disease. And we have the opportunity to treat the number one all-cause oncologic mortality, which is lung cancer. So, I mean, we're in a really unique and fortunate position. And in that, you know, mindset, neither of those two things are really going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, when we have general surgery residents rotate on the thoracic service, I always tell them, you know, you have an opportunity to have, you know, excellent job security, excellent job satisfaction, and really make an impact either in an oncologic or non-oncologic based field. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. That's a great positive way of ending this this podcast recording. And uh, Daniel Ziazide, um, Tessa Watt, James Bailey, and Natalie Ostro, thank you very much. It was great fun to do this, uh, this podcast and, and get your perspective. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah, it was really uh, great and 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 great perspectives and uh, really uh, you know different viewpoints than from let's say the the older generation. So it's great. We we touched on so many different aspects. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.